coming to you from a probe repurposed by Tonru to sterilize all imperfection. This is Politrex. The Time Directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, the World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to Politrex. It's great that you've taken time to talk all things politics within Star Trek with us. We're a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network family. And speaking of family, I would be remiss not to mention my dear friend and co-host, the often imitated, never replicated, Mr. Shashank Avaru. How are you doing today, Shashank Unit? Namaste, Homo sapiens. It is, uh, as always, nice to catch up with everyone there. Apparently, we have been parts of people's bus rides, their treks to work. We have been parts of uh, people's uh, daily listening, weekly listening, and we definitely appreciate it. I hope we are saying interesting things, and even if we aren't, I hope we are keeping you entertained. We have to keep you entertained, and you know what? We're talking TMP today. Uh, the motion picture, which um, perhaps for some of us, it isn't necessarily the most action-packed movie of all time, but I guarantee we have managed to, as Shashank very aptly said in our pre, uh, pre-episode pre chat, we have squeezed the lemon, and uh, we've got every every bit of tasty, sweet, and sour juice from it, and I'm going to just totally pull shoot on this allegory, because it's getting weird, wouldn't you say? No, keep going. I like weird. I think that's why people listen to our show. It's one brown guy and one white guy talking about weird things. That's what our show is about. Let's own the weirdness, man. That's what Star Trek is about. That's what politics are about. That's what you and I should be about. You know, you're right. And and maybe maybe just the fact, like, I ended up watching TMP twice. I watched the show twice. So I did have time to be dazzled by all the weirdness that the late 70s had to offer. And other than that, it's been loads of fun engaging, yeah, with our listeners and supporters, and especially our Patreon supporters. We are so extremely happy that you guys are are giving us a little bit of extra cash injections or your quatlus or your latinum to help us out. Uh, Shashank, you did you did sort of mention one of our, our great shoutouts, and, and you had done that a little bit earlier um, on our Twitter feed, but uh, maybe just a quick shout-out to um, one of one of your special friends uh, in the episode here, just, just to, to get our listeners aware if they haven't known about that. You did, you did have a really awesome and very heartwarming thread about her. Absolutely. One of my favorite people in the world, Rianne Fox, just sent tricorder transmissions a message recently saying how she became a patreon supporter because she's enjoying our show that melted my cold heart and for a second i felt like i was worth living in this world and enjoying the resources that the planet has to offer so thank you for that fellow human being and lovely person rian fox you can you can you don't have to support us on patreon but just know that it's uh, it's appreciated it means the world to us you can just always send us a nice tweet like we get every every now and then on at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S on Twitter. You can also give us a shout out on Facebook. We are also there on Polytrex. And uh, how else can people get to us if they want to share what they think of us, Barry? Well, you can call into the show and leave a voicemail at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609 
5527. So we are Polytrex on the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network, but there is a myriad, and I mean a myriad, of other shows coming out right now. So whatever your Trek fancy, you can bet you'll find it here for sure. We have fabulous shows like the Tricorder Transmissions podcast itself, the original mission, Shore Leave, Trek Ranks, Drawing Trek, Disco Trek, Reading Trek, which is one of our brand new podcasts. I'm really excited about Reading Trek, and I'm spending a lot of my money right now trying to get the books, and now I'm trying to make time to be able to read them all. But uh, I guarantee, um, guys, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep up as best as I can. But I'm also super excited to be announcing that we have another show coming up. It's called Trek Profiles. It's hosted by John Kikorian, who is easily one of my favorite people he is a fantastic stand-up guy who is going to be looking at different people within the Star Trek community and kind of deep diving their Trek and, and how they, how they love Trek. And, uh, that's, that's super awesome. So definitely if you, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we are going to be having some, maybe some call-in contests, maybe some tweet hashtag contests coming up. If you are interested in supporting us on Patreon, it's at the top right of the page. But also, I have a little uh, Politrex connection here. Shashank and I do usually about a good half an hour to 45 minutes of delightful and uh, uh, charming banter. And I will be putting together a sort of a highlight of some of the great banter that we have had in the last, what is it, four months that we've been doing this, Shashank? Absolutely. Some of the best four months of my life, simply because there is now a listener at the other end. When I talk about my conspiracy theories, like how all of Star Trek is really supposed to be happening inside Gene Roddenberry's head and not in a real future. And Barry's there and he'll entertain these crazy ideas. So if you just want to listen to things like that and also listen to Barry saying incredibly smart things, and funny things you should definitely get on get on that horse i mostly read um um quotes off of fridge magnets so yes it's a lot to look forward to on that and you know with that if you are still looking for other things trek you can always check out our buddies den and bill the trek geeks they're always fun as well and uh, perhaps slightly uh slightly intimidated by our our rapid and st- sort of stunning growth it's i i feel i feel kind of like we're the borg i don't know about you shashank i don't know if we are the borg but i would like to assimilate some people that does sound like a fun thing to do on a saturday night you know i got assimilated at stlv last year and it tickled i was thinking all those nanoprobes shooting through my body would be painful or upsetting but actually i just sort of i don't know it's felt like a like a little tickle it was, it was fine anyways i i I want to get assimilated so I can introduce some fashion into the idea of the Borg. Like, why does everything have to be neon green and black? Like, yeah. why can't we just have a nice blue, you know, yeah. a nice Hawaii color every now and then just yeah. to get some diversity in that assimilation, you know? Tropical we need to Borg. look cool. Yeah, we need to look cool while we take away people's minds and stripe, strip them of their identity. Uh, this got a little dark, I'm sorry. There's a lot in that. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to play a little music for everyone, <laughs> and we're going to go to the news. And while that music is playing, I'll pick something nice, and you guys can think about that thought. Wait, that's the music that will prepare them for the assimilation, right? Yes, yes. Prepare for assimilation okay. music in five, four, three, two, one. Thank you. 
welcome back everyone if you weren't assimilated already be prepared to be assimilated although based on the reality we are living in i would rather be assimilated than have my own thoughts and visions and opinions right now because everything is upside down and i have no idea where things are but we are here i'm here barry's here and we are ready to get into the news barry well you're going to tell me about some kind of bullet ceremony what was that Oh yeah so uh, in in this alternate reality where we are living in and we are all in Cardassia and uh, there there is no justice system anymore and there is no there is no goodness anymore in this world there was a bullet ceremony where uh, people literally worshiped guns in Newfoundland Pennsylvania this happened today on the day of our recording the 28th of February you can look this up it was at the world peace and unification sanctuary where a group of people gathered a good amount of people got together and uh, they marched with their ar15s they prayed with their ar15s while wearing crowns made of bullets and they got into prayer rooms and they chanted names of rifles and made prayers to the weapons while all the while holding their uh, guns proudly and uh, this event was so disturbing to the local community of Newfoundland which is a few thousand people that they had to shut the nearby school down because they didn't want the kids anywhere in the vicinity of this area uh, and these are just these are just the facts this is me doing my best to, to not break out and scream into my mic i am without words on that like you know i don't know I've, I've, I've seen, you know, some, some interesting hobbies and, and, and get togethers and, you know, people, people can express their, their individuality in, in, in very fascinating ways, but there is, you know, something profoundly bizarre and terrifying about something like that. Now, it's funny. I've studied martial arts for like 30 years and I have a sword and I take time with that sword. I, I, I practice with it. I clean it. I, I, you know, sometimes we'll cut fruit with it just for fun in the summertime. But this really does sort of kind of harken back to like feudal society, like say, you know, the Japanese samurai or, or, you know, the Syrians, uh, or the Divshirma in, in Turkey or, or, you know, the, the, the conquistadors or something, you know, like where, you know, they would worship their weapons and they were terrifying. So I don't really know what to say or do about the whole thing other than to like, look at it and like, acknowledge its presence and then i don't know just not just try not to think about it i guess is is the best way to put it so i come from india where uh, civilization has grown for millennia now and there are things that happen in my country that even growing up confused me there is one very weird hindu marriage ritual where if a man or a woman doesn't have the right let's just say in the simplest terms they write astrological signs if everything isn't right with their partner uh, through the religious scriptures they will actually marry a dog before they marry the person they're supposed to marry 
because the scriptures tell you that if your particular energy doesn't vibe with this person's uh, astrological pattern, you need to marry a dog so that dog can take over all this negativity and then you're ready to be married off to that human being. And up until I, I saw this news this morning, I thought that was one of the weirdest object attachment ceremonies I saw in my life. And now I just, I, I don't, I don't know anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Check it out on our, on our feed on Twitter. Even if it's a little down, we might retweet it and just kind of pop it back up to the top. But uh, yeah, enjoy that one. It's, it's pretty weird. I'm going to move uh, on. <laughs> uh, can I, can I just say one, just one more thing? Sure. You know what angers, angers me, Barry is in this country, somehow that's okay. Like it's okay to walk around praying to your guns and congregating and worshiping guns and shutting schools down. But my people have to be shot for wearing a turban and people from the Middle East have to be killed for having a beard or women have to be assaulted for wearing a hijab. Like there is is so much there that depresses me and hurts me and makes me question so many things. But uh, I'm sorry, we should move on. You're right, because that is not what all our news is about today. It's just a very bizarre, weird thing that I hope is limited to this one event. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I promise, dear listeners, dear listener, dear listeners, that we will be moving on to happier things in just a moment. I do want to address the shooting in Florida, in Parkland, and just how awful and terrible that was. I, uh, some of you may know, um, I am a school teacher myself up here in Canada. And I, I love my students. I love them dearly. I want them to succeed in life. Seeing them do amazing things is why I do it. I put in the long hours. I do all the, the hard work. I deal with some of the really heavy, heavy stuff because I want those students to have the greatest possible opportunity as they, as they move forward. And I truly believe it, it takes a it takes an it takes an entire community to raise a child, and I don't don't dispute just how hard parents have to work. I mean, you know, you you have a kid; it's not the you show anymore; it's the them show. And as a teacher, I try to try to honor that as much as possible. But um, stuff like this happening is is really really terrible. And I mean, I come from a country with a lot higher gun control on that, and that's just sort of the way it is. And and you know, I mean, to understand that that adding gun control necessarily. And Shashank, I'll give you a minute to respond in just a sec, but I don't think, you know, there's 34 million people in Canada, 330 million people in the United States. I really don't feel like we're going to be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube, shall we say, about uh, gun control in terms of like banning ARs. If someone already owns one, I don't think we can get rid of it. But uh, if I could say, you know, and I was actually talking with some friends on another podcast uh, just recently about this, and, and we all agreed that the emphasis needs to be on community. And, and, and community involvement and people getting together, you know, I really think that in a lot of cases, we are atomizing a lot more and a lot more, you know, in, you know, you can blame the internet, you can blame all these different things, whatever it's happening, people aren't connecting as much as I I wish they would. And maybe it's a population thing or whatever, but, you know, community when they're really together, when they're really talking to each other, when they're really sharing and, 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 you know, sometimes it's hard. It's, this isn't some easy answer. I mean, building a community can be very tough because you're dealing with many different personalities and different ways of doing things, but that kind of connection, you know, I really think, and this, this is nothing against say the parents of, of, of the shooter necessarily, but to the community itself, I would say, you know, like 
if we can build that more, and I'm not blaming the school either. I think the school has a good a good community also, but it's these individuals falling through the tra- cracks. I think I think stronger community focus can can work to catch stuff like this and it won't be a hundred percent and maybe to that degree there needs to be some level of gun control there but um i really want to see that community focus where where people know their neighbors a lot better and 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 stuff and i'm not i guess i can't speak for florida right i, I live up in canada but it's definitely a thing up here even where our communities are starting to atomize more and more and you know i'm in more contact with people who live in arkansas or california or new hampshire you know which is great and and i love the people i'm i'm meeting and, and learning from and growing with but like if my house was on fire i couldn't come and see them right and, and I think that that is a that is a serious thing, and maybe maybe that's kind of where we would want to focus. Like, if there's something we can do right now, you know, like knock on your neighbor's apartment door at some point when you know they're they're they might be like receptive to a visit. Get to know the person next to you. That, that's what I would say. And and you know, learn and and grow and and maybe build some strong relationships and maybe even lasting friendships. Who knows? I hear you. I understand that. There are a lot of emotions, especially for you as someone who has to be a part of this conversation, even if you don't want to, simply because of the logistics of where you work and the career you have chosen. And it's important that we build community. It's important that people look at and consider our options. But just on a logical level as a human being, can I can I please say that it's not a solution to arm teachers? Just Im- just imagine what it would do psychologically to children to see a gun in their classroom or know that there is a gun on their campus, irrespective of who's holding it, irrespective of why it is there. Just knowing that a place where they come to learn and grow and understand life and become adults, if such terrible truths are being pushed on them, it, it just stops making sense for us to... I genuinely think if we can't protect our kids, we should all just stop what we're doing. Nothing matters if we cannot protect our children. That is, that has to be the the of the paramount priority, no matter who you are, which country you're in, what you eat, what you look like. And if we as adults can't protect our kids, we should just we should just give up on life. There is no point in doing anything else. And Really, the, the the dumbest idea is saying we should arm everyone in school so people don't get hurt. I'm just going to end this by say by reading out a tweet that I read that seemed to encapsulate my my thoughts on this. This is from our beloved Mud uh, Rain Wilson. He wrote some safety ideas to end bank robberies: arm all tellers. To end carjackings: arm all drivers. To end domestic abuse arm all women to end all war arm all humans <laughs> yeah no that, that hits it right on the head and and i agree like putting a gun in my or any of my colleagues hands isn't going to solve anything and i find the notion profoundly disturbing right and and that is that that's it right you know like to stop, I saw a tweet that was like, to stop shark attacks, we're adding more sharks to the water to protect from the evil sharks. And it's just like, you know, this, this isn't, this is stupid. Like, I, I, I really can't say it any other way. And I really think that, that, uh, in that case, what, what's happening is the argument is being 
turned on its head, right? That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the concept of controlling what gets sold. We are fighting against a political lobby. We're fighting against, you know, a, a culture, really, that, that that is very different, right? It's a gun culture that, that exists. And yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, uh, a culture in which people pray and worship the guns. Yeah, and I guess, like, here's the other, like, on the other side of it, I mean, I know a lot of responsible, good gun owners who just, like, they wouldn't take a shovel shopping, they're not going to use their gun other than to hunt or target practice, you know, and that sort of stuff. And I don't really think, and, and I think it's a conflation to a degree, saying that they're in any kind of real danger that, they're, that their livelihood's going to get taken away. I mean, Star Trek got put behind a paywall right? There's a regulation that ended up taking place to Star Trek. And a lot of people have had a lot of things to say about it. But it hasn't ended Star Trek, right? And then to, to pull this back to to a Star Trek focus, you know, I would say that that would be my argument is if you're really afraid that gun control is going to ruin everything about guns, you know, we need we need to respond to this somehow. And if we don't, then you're right, Shashank, if we can't protect our kids, then everyone needs to stop what they're doing and focus on on these kids, focus on on mental health, focus on community, focus on what's important to us, because let's face it, what's happening, that's not natural. It's not a natural thing. You know, I don't think, and I would go further to say that a lot of other things like poverty and and stuff uh, is not natural either. And if we allow these unnatural things to happen, you know, it takes us away. It takes us away from 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 our humanity, and we can't let that happen. In a in a lot of ways, that Star Trek parallel works, especially with Discovery, because just think about it: the fact that people pay a certain amount of money allows us to get the kind of Trek that most of us enjoy. It's the it's the Trek that does not have to conform to the limitations of cable television. It's the trek that does not need a 10-minute break after Act 1 because somebody needs to sell some detergent. It focuses on pure, innovative, forward-thinking, progressive storytelling, and it gives us the best possible version of the show. It simply makes sense that if you regulate gun control to where kids in schools are not being killed, I'm just going to say that again, kids in schools are not being killed, it seems like a win for society. Yeah. Just I, logically. Yeah. The return the return of Star Trek to TV, I think, was a win for 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 you know Trekdom and, and sci-fi culture in general, right? It, it it builds, it adds. And I think that's the thing, is we're not we're not restricting things. I mean, you know, my country does have some pretty strict gun control laws, and I've had the opportunity to make bullets with one of my friends um, for an AR-33, actually. And he is one of the most responsible people, devoted father. He's got his head on straight, and he's really, really good at jujitsu, you know? <laughs> like, And he's had a military career and, and, like, just, you know, likes to ride his motorbike in the summer and all these these nice things about him. And yeah, like, there, there, there really shouldn't be a threat there, you know. Um, they shouldn't see this as a threat, as more of a, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make this, we're gonna adapt, we're gonna adapt this to to modern culture because we need to. Because you're right, kids are dying, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a teacher, so I just, I can't, I can't abide by it. And I, yeah, I, mean, I don't think that gives me some kind of extra license, um, being just a teacher. But like, yeah, uh, I work with kids. Anyway, I. I am going to turn this uh, this spaceship right back out from Cardassia so we can come back to our reality where we can actually talk about things that might be positive. 
Justin Trudeau went to India. Justin Trudeau, just so you all know, is my country's hunky prime minister. He is the son of a very important prime minister Mm -hmm. of the past, uh, Pierre Trudeau. And Justin, his wife, Sophia, and his family traveled to Shashank's home country and played a lot of dress up. And I will say that a lot of Canadians are throwing Justin uh, a fair bit of shade about the whole thing because they're kind of like, is this sort of like a cultural appropriation thing? You know, there's a lot of pictures of him sort of in the namaste pose, sort of, as I would say, with the palms together. Shashank, you may know, is there a word for that? That's a a good term for it, the the namaste pose or uh, the hands folded pose. Or it's really uh, when somebody folds their hands in India, it's really to signify respect. So it's to signify you bow your head down and you fold your hands showing that you're surrendering that attention and that you're you're respecting the person in front of you. So it's a a good thing that that there are a lot of pictures. I think it's a good thing that there are a lot of pictures in that in that pose and there is uh, I understand the controversy but I'm I'm just going to put this out there it's very important that people understand how things have changed since the US election especially for Canada now there is a big big playing ground that was not considered before for the fortune 500 companies for the big software and uh, the oil companies in India, there is just a lot of room and a, and a lot of playing ground for a new partnership that was earlier the India and the United States. It's no secret that we Indians move around the world. It's no secret that we Indians have assimilated ourselves to a lot of places in the world. And this is this has become part of a globalized conversation. We we have moved here and we are choosing to live our lives here. And the same can be said about Canada. Canada now wants to be a part of the world conversation because Canada sees that there is there is a gap there that needs to be filled by the West because mainly the United States wants to be very America first. So when the prime minister went there while a lot of people saw the dress up and they saw the possible cultural appropriation and they criticized him for it, what a lot of people missed, I think, is how he set up incredibly powerful CEOs from Canada and India to get together to have business meetings. That meant the world to me, knowing that there is an opportunity for those of us that dream of coming here and want to live our lives here and have the joys that these democracies have to offer that he was able to facilitate that conversation is so worth the controversy that people have. And, you know, the the dress apart, that that entire conversation, again, seems so narrow-minded because it seems like people are trying to look at it through one particular lens of, oh, Justin Trudeau is trying to go hurt our community as opposed to, oh, there is a Canadian who wants to experience India the way it's supposed to be experienced. So he's trying to do his best in a, a to represent himself, his country, and a community that he comes from. It's it just the idea seems very narrow-minded to when you think about, oh, there is this one little thing that I want to look at. It's like looking at a little dot of ink on a giant piece of paper and saying, all I can see is that ink dot when there is this big piece of beautiful white paper where there is so much playing ground for you to create new things. Fair enough. And, you know, I mean, I guess we can think of it as as Prime Minister Trudeau sort of setting up a federation of sorts Um, and, 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 you know, when when say you know Picard would be going from place to place, sometimes he would he would get up in into some of the 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 more traditional 
outfits and and attire of the individuals who he would be visiting their their different societies and cultures and so to see that you know from that lens is good and and maybe you know to a degree as you know a euro canadian myself i'm kind of rubbed raw by the idea of you know cultural appropriation and stuff like that so i i find it refreshing what you're saying and 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 such and yeah so if you know, I mean, I know, I know, Shashank, you don't speak for India, but definitely, you know, your your point coming from your perspective is important. And I mean, I don't speak for Canada either, but it is definitely. I mean, we Justin Trudeau like one time did a boxing match, and he was like a canoe instructor or something like that for a while, and so he's he's worn many hats, and I feel like he's still wearing a lot of hats. <laughs> it's and. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think wearing a lot of hats is a bad idea. You know, there is a genuine difference between when Cisco visits Bejor and Gul Dukat visits Bejor. When yeah. Cisco visits Bejor, it is to get something new started. When Gul Dukat visits Bejor, it is to make sure his work slaves are being pressed down under his thumb so they can continue working to mine out what he wants. It's even if you just look at it from a very black and white perspective. Irrespective of the controversy, I think the the visit was mostly successful because it helped us establish new relationships between two communities that have that are now so strongly tied together. There is a huge Sikh population in Canada that is not public. Uh, that is not new public information. There is a huge Indian population in Canada and has been for the last hundred years. People have been moving there ever since the uh, the acceptance uh, started between these countries and both countries have benefited for it so when this leader goes there and he's trying to he's trying to become part of the culture but and he's being sincere and earnest that means so much more to me than you know uh, one of the trumps going there and making fun of our poor by saying things like oh even the poorest of the poor have a smile on their face here in india you know that 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 recently happened when donald trump junior went there and just to, that i would i would much prefer a prime minister going there and having an uh, i would much prefer the cisco version of an international politician to the Galdukat version. Yeah, no, I, I, I will, I will, I, I honestly don't really have any, any other sort of response other than that. That's a very, uh, an interesting point to consider and something that again, I, I think I need to sort of sit back and kind of look at it through those eyes again, because yeah, I, I hadn't really paid much attention to other, other leaders or their family showing up. And that that's, that's an interesting sort of contrast to make. So in other news, one last little piece here, and this is this is the best news, I think, is is Politrex is getting around quite a bit recently. We've been obviously um, getting to 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 talk and coordinate with our fellow Tricorder Transmissions hosts of all of their respective shows. And I've uh, I've had the chance to go on um, discovering Trek with uh, Dan and Bill from the Trek Geeks, and Shashank. It sounds like uh, we've got some more possibilities coming forward with other guests and um, and being on other podcasts. So folks, mm-hmm. listen very uh, carefully, watch closely, keep keep an eye on our Facebook and our Twitter feed because uh, we're we're moving and shaking. It's great. Yeah, we are uh, we are sowing our podcast wild oats all over the Tricorder Transmissions Network, and it is wonderful. We are uh, one of the one of the things I'm very excited about is uh, we are having conversations with uh, one of our 
other shows about possibly bringing in some comic book conversation into the mixture maybe doing uh, a few episodes about all the wonderful star trek comic books that we have out there so that is one i'm very excited about i eat sleep breathe drink comics so any opportunity to talk about comics is is pretty delightful and the fact that you are all over the place not just in polytrex uh, episodes uh, uh but i try quarter episodes in and out and you are also part of you are also going off and participating in other cool shows uh are this i think this is where we give our traditional shout out to bill and dance woo trek geeks and it's it, it's just good news all around so we i'm glad we are ending the news on a happy note it just seems nice exactly well we're heading into the into the uh, the the great 70s milestone which is the motion picture so stay tuned as we head into our main topic the politrex of star trek the motion picture the main part of our episode today this episode is part of our continuing series the polytrex off the polytrex off is a series that will explore the political context of the movie that we talk about today we will try our best to be objective about the movie we will not go deep into how this movie is bad or good critically instead we will do what we at Polytrex are aspiring to do, we will dig into and pull out the political bones, the social veins of the movie, and we will put them up against real-world parallels and what the movie was trying to show us and how Trek dealt with it and how the real world dealt with it. And through this confluence, we'll try our best to help you and us look at these movies in a new light. Absolutely. And just to build on that as well, folks, know that we're not going to, you know, sort of uh, mission log our way through each movie in the next little while. We're going to come and go. We're going to intermittently dip into different movies from time to time. We have some great guests on the way that we want to make sure we can prioritize as well. But I'm really excited about this this series that we're going to do. We can we get a chance to watch all of the Star Trek movies, even the final frontier. And I'm excited about that too. And, uh, and yeah, just look at those deeper, deeper things and deeper meanings. And we really encourage discussion debate. If you have anything you want to say, you can always call in, you can always find us on our, our social media to build this conversation. So Shashank, I think we should get started, uh, unless there's anything else you want to, to, to add to that. No, I think we're good. All right. Well, I'm going to dive in here and, and look a little bit at, when Kirk comes in with the motion picture here, he's an admiral. He's he's sort of a bigger boss now, right? And of course, I like to think of James T. Kirk and William Shatner as as very similar people in a lot of cases, or at least uh, they they influenced one another enough that uh, that both of them are real and also fictional in my heart. But I feel bad for both Deckers in in their in their contexts. One of them loses a ship, and one of them loses command, and then. 
I don't know, he kind of gets super saiyan into a new life form, which I guess is better than what happened to dad. But apparently there's a very real problem of people's bosses who end up doing their job. And it's not because the individual in question is inept or unable. I don't think Decker was either of those things. But that boss, who usually had the job at some similar point, and I think you guys can see where I'm coming here, just can't let go of their of their old position and they opt instead to work away at the old thing they used to do, which kind of undermines their subordinates. So I checked an article out that we'll, that we'll add on our, our, our webpage here, our different uh, social media pages. It's from the Harvard Business Review, and it says that of a study of 2,700 people, 1,800 either complained or admitted to being the boss or having their boss take over their position because it was an older position. And so what results is those below feeling like they're not really making a difference, not to mention overworking the boss. So that's like 67% of the respondents who they spoke to. So I think that's better than than half to a, like a level, like that's like a passing grade kind of idea. So I don't know, Shashank, have you ever experienced something like that? It's interesting that that is something that is prevalent across cultures and countries. There is no place where that is that is different. I grew up in three countries. My I've I've had these experiences. I've uh, seen my dad and mom face these experiences when they were at their jobs. There is always someone there uh, that will try to overshadow what you're trying to do, irrespective of how good it is. There it's some in a strange way it's not about you. It's about the person who's supposed to let you do your job. And whether you're working in an IT company or whether you're working at the White House, things are different. We know that very famously, John F. Kennedy uh, overshadowed his vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson. It was a it was a very weird uh, uh, relationship that they had. And there were, often, there were often discussions in the background about how one was maybe taking up too much limelight and uh, it's it's just a very it's in a strange way it's a very comforting thought because i now know that that when it, when it happens between admiral kirk and decker it's not something that is new it's just a part of humanity that we have carried over all these years from when we existed to where we are now in space fighting off alien threats yeah, and it's a it's a very political thing as well, right? Like if if you if you think of politics not just as people like campaigning, and that's a really good connection to to JFK and and his relationship with President to, eventually President Johnson, which that's a that's a that's a whole other podcast, I think. But uh, you know, it, it is a political thing, and I think the response needs to be political. So the Harvard Business Review article as well has some steps that you can take to try to maybe make it a little bit better for yourself. So this is my advice to to Captain Decker, who, of course, hasn't been born yet, because that's always up in the future. And Shashank, yes, it's even good to know that that we will be dealing with these similar hierarchical issues in the future, too, possibly in our, our resource-free, um, post-resource or post-scarcity society. Mm-hmm. So in light of this review, here are the steps that Decker could have taken. First of all, he should have asked... Kirk more solidly what his expectations were to be rather than just executive officer right that's that's a very nebulous term I guess they were fighting something very nebulous as well but he should have asked what his responsibilities were especially after being bumped further when Spock shows up 
And, and you know, what did the chain of command really look like after that? So that, that would be sort of a first bit. I think Decker was right in stating that the ship was practically unrecognizable as well from what it was. And maybe, you know, like a rundown of schematics or even asking Kirk, you know, where the canteen was or something might have settled the issue. But, you know, Kirk sets straight into reassurance mode, which is actually something that the the boss will kind of do, according to this article, that when you ask certain questions like this, they go into kind of a reassuring language. And you know, I don't think Decker should have stood for that. I really think that Decker should have stood his ground a little bit more. But uh, you know, that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been as interesting. Absolutely, I think that's a healthy rivalry in a lot of ways. It, it brings back to mind the scene where. Uh, Decker goes against commands and stops the phasers from being fired and instead goes on the torpedo route to shoot the asteroid. It's a, and then uh, like any good leader would do, Kirk just silently takes him into the, in, to the side and asks him, why did you do that? And then Decker honestly tells him, I don't think you're prepared for this. And I think we'll fail because you have no, you've not, you've not had logged a single star hour in the last two and a half years. Very famously, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton during their 2008 primary had a healthy rivalry. Like they made often biting negative comments about each other. It was uh, one of the most famous ones was Barack Obama saying to Hillary, yeah, you're likable enough. And that became one of the driving forces of a then campaign. And, and it was a big reason why she lost the campaign. Uh, but the way that turned was in 2010, President Obama hired her to become Secretary of State. So in a lot of these political situations, much like between Kirk and Decker, you need people that will disagree with you. And I understand that that's not exactly what the relationship is because Kirk is also trying to overcompensate in some way. But mostly the relationship seems to me to be a healthy, positive rivalry and it was a refreshing change from the traditional yes manning of the crew, uh, of everyone in the crew except for McCoy with Kurt. Yeah, you know, I I would say that that there is there is a lot of positives to it, but I, there are moments, you know, especially during that that wormhole scene where you know they're they're basically traveling through this you know that little weird hole in space and the thought of going into a wormhole from warp is terrifying to me just just as a sort of an existential problem but i think you know in that case when kirk takes him aside i think it did kind of you know that was very much a a, a bit of a power struggle sort of thing you know when when, mm-hmm. when decker shouts blay that order it kind nice of almost, Decker impression. Thank you. Thank you. I've been practicing that for a while. Um, anyways, I, I do think that it kind of makes them both look bad in the sense that in this one moment, they, they you know, Kirk has, has very much just sort of plopped himself right into the captain's chair again. And then there's Decker. And Decker brings up a very good point, like you said, right? The idea of this, you know, shooting shooting with a phaser versus a photon torpedo. And I guess, you know, the unintended consequences of what what Kirk's executive action really could have done. Now, I don't think Decker really could have foreseen the things that were happening as well, right? Like losing Ilea and himself, like I said, being merged into AI energy, you know, obviously wasn't accounted for. And I really think he makes the most of the whole situation. I also just have to say, like, wasn't that the best take this job and shove it moment? When, when he does decide to merge with V'ger, where he's just like, <laughs> spend my time with, you know, these yahoos, or maybe I'll just 
just go, like I said, go Super Saiyan and, and turn into a disco halo explosion than just work another day with 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 Admiral Kirk. And so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe his I, I, both both Deckers, right? His dad also opts for less time with Jim and the gang, opting to quote unquote merge with something acting. You know, on, on both of these, both the V'ger and the Doomsday Machine are programmed to destroy, right? Yeah, absolutely. In a in a lot of ways, this could just be me being a span of fi- spy fiction. This is an uh, this is just a shout out also to our uh, spies in our Star Society multi episode part that you can go back and listen to, where we just fangirl about spies. But the the motion picture to me is an allegory for the Cold War standoffs that were there most prevalently at that time. Uh, more specifically, it's a very Cuban Missile Crisis situation where there are two parties, both do not know each other very well, and there's a ticking clock and we don't know what is going to happen and everything is sort of at stake. Uh, in, in this situation, literally Earth is at stake. Uh and when often uh, are those cases, you'll you'll see that spies or people working for one form of government will will empathize with the enemy. They will sympathize with the enemy. And there is there are incidents over time where they just uh, they just essentially elope from this this romantic idea that they gave for their country to become part of this other country. It's not unheard of for Russian spies to go to have come and become part of uh, the American society and vice versa. One of the most famous cases was toward the end of World War II, where a lot of German scientists moved to America and they helped America build its uh, uh, its weapon armada. They helped them build their uh, nuclear power. It was a so when that when that uh, take your job and shove it moment, as you put it, happened, it just harkened back to me the realities of when there are two sides and the the other side seems pleasing if you're uh, if you're not a man of a will as ironclad as captain kirk you would you tend to make a decision like that you know the 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 idea of this being sort of two groups you know both two entities right you've got the federation and you've got viger and both sides have expectations of what they're dealing with and both have protocols on what they're supposed to do. And I think the Klingons sort of add that sort of neat little Oreo cream filling to it where they're just like, hey, look at that thing we don't recognize. Let's shoot it a bunch and see what happens. And they get destroyed. A quick a quick aside, things that were quote unquote destroyed by V'ger, I, I feel like they weren't really destroyed more than they were basically like permanently put into like a pattern buffer you know like they it viger kills ilea like straight up she dies like she she ceases to exist but then Mm -hmm. it it, like a transporter completely recreates her perfectly so much so that she's actually able to recognize decker so i wondered this that's a quick little aside for for listeners let me know were these were were those klingons at the beginning were they killed or were they just pattern buffered into viger's computer database i would like to think it's a prelude to the borg technique instead of taking it and killing it and removing it from existence they just take it and remove it from our physical reality they essentially put it in some sort of a limbo until that particular resource is needed because it's an AI, you know, it's an artificial intelligence. It wouldn't be very intelligent if it just vaporized everything. Its resourcefulness is more powerful and more terrifying if it actually takes things in, 
keeps them invisible until such time as it needs to bring them back to light to manifest them again. So yeah, that Vija becomes a much bigger threat when you look at it the way you're putting it. Well, speaking of that, there is actually a another article that I looked at about the existential threat of of artificial intelligence. So aside from like pandemics, nuclear holocaust, extreme climate change brought on either by humankind or natural causes, say like volcanic activity, and obviously I think the former is a little more likely than the latter, or doing it the old-fashioned way and getting hit by an asteroid or a comet, artificial intelligence may be just what does it in. And so you were talking about the the feeling of of existential threat from the Cold War, right? And and that connection I think is really strong. And I think it kind of ties in because the artificial intelligence that we are encountering in TMP does have a protocol, right? It 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 will actually do the things that it's programmed to do, much like people or NATO will do. You know, and apart from like physical attributes that we see from those like more human and dog-like bots that reachers researchers like kick over, or, like knock the boxes out of their hands. I feel like all those robots that like those tech companies are building and they like push them and like slam doors in their faces like one day those robots are just like they're gonna skynet the crap out of that place and just like (laughs) with their weird little ball hands just beat up their 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 creators for doing what they did but like that's the thing is like computers at thinking us is probably the scariest thing of all right being able to outwit us is the best way to beat humans i mean evolutionary speaking speaking like we don't have much else except for our brains so creating a computer that's smarter than us is cool so long as it remains benevolent so in the case of viger it's not automatically out to get us i don't think and i think that's important to understand and i think when you talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis, I don't necessarily think that both sides were out to get each other. More Absolutely, than it was like it was like posturing, right? And it was this whole game of chess that we could play with each other. But being able to outwit us—that does—that does—that that's it. Like in the case of Viger, it's not it's not here to to kill us. But like Nomad in the original series, arguably where the writers get the idea for Viger, what it's expecting to discover from what actually it does is the most troubling thing, because not only is it able to outwit us, it's able to outthink us. It's also considerably more powerful and it can destroy us so easily. So the whole posturing where two nations go, go at it, it's human on human and we can play each other's games. But if we have artificial intelligence, it's already 10 steps ahead of us. It's a, the, the idea also is not without uh, merit. The fact that AI will be the thing that will either unite us or break us. Because just even if you look at the world we live in today, late 2017 was when Saudi Arabia approved a robot to gain citizenship. Getting citizenship in Saudi Arabia as someone who has lived in the Middle East I can tell you is one of the most difficult things in the world. Even if you're born there, if your parents aren't born in the Middle East, you cannot get a citizenship. You merely get a residentship. But in a world where the Middle East, one of the most conservative, uh, technologically not so friendly nation is adapting uh, AI with such warm embraces, that scares me a little. And the fact that not just in the Middle East, but everywhere else, AI is quickly overtaking the traditional machines. All of it has a political bent to it. And I don't think we're uh, very far away from a Skynet or a Vijay because our our phones can talk to us now, you know, our cars can talk to us, our 
homes talk to us. We talk to our houses. Uh, we are building robots that can essentially replace human companionship. It's a we're getting to a point where AI starts becoming a political resource. AI becomes political. Uh, it starts becoming political bread for countries to fight over. And when it gets to a point where everybody unites and creates a global AI and one big driving resource, that's when things starts to things start to get vigory. They start to get uh, skynetty, and that's what I think the motion picture is alluding to, especially with the ending connection that Vijay has to Earth. It's a, it's a very interesting way of showing how AI is not just technologically terrifying, but also politically terrifying. Yeah. And the article refers to the idea, you know, it was written in 2017, but it reports to a 2014 study that postulates that computers will be as smart as humans by likely by 2040. And then from there, there's a 75% chance that AI will be smarter than humans within the 30 years after that. So before 2100, there's a pretty high chance that AI would be smarter. And maybe, you know, here we're looping to the speculative, but a singularity, as it's often referred to, could, and like you said, will dramatically change human society, not to mention like a person's day to day. Look at how much technology has advanced even from the motion picture itself, right? Like we've gotten rid of, you know, you and I were talking about VHS and, and VCRs just a little while ago. Actually, Thad Haight and I were talking about that on, on Facebook today about some like loot crate or something like that coming up with like a VHS box. So look at how much things have changed. Also, let's say the AI we have does start operating, like you said, Skynetty or Vigery, killing Ilea, you know, or processing them, whatever you want to say, those those Klingons or anyone else is meaningless in its pursuit for its next evolutionary step. So even when it creates an avatar out of the information that it took from Ilea is like to us very callous. But if it's thinking beyond our thought processes, the life of something less advanced than you is irrelevant. So I mean, like bugs, right? Like, We've all stepped on bugs and, you know, we don't have little funerals for them or anything like that. We don't we don't commemorate their loss, right? They don't matter to us in any immediate sense. We just squish them and move on. So why would a considerably advanced intelligence really care about us, even if we were its creators? Yeah, you know, Barry, to me, not just as a political enthusiast, but as someone who thinks he understands what's going on in the world. What is more terrifying to me is not that machines want to be human. It's that we human beings are so willing to become machines. We want these things to merge with us. We cannot live without our cell phones. We cannot live without the constant flux of AI that is telling us what we like to eat, what we like to watch, what we like to listen to, where we'd like to go. Somehow we have decided to let that part take over us and it's we are not we're already in a world where the biggest war of the last two three years was a cyber attack on the u.s election system it was not fought on ground where souls were lost it was fought on computers where freedoms were taken away by manipulating things through wires and uh, things that really don't have a physical manifestation so that terrifies me and Bringing that to a real-world threat and showing that through Vijay is one of the more powerful things that the motion picture does. There are a lot of criticisms about the movie, and you and I have shared them. I don't know if they'll ever go out into this world, uh, because I know we've talked a little bit about sharing it with our Patreon subscribers, but we, we, we are very clear about how much there is wrong with this movie. But 
that we cannot deny that in spite of all that there are all these fascinating uh, political and ai based politics that it talks about so beautifully absolutely and we have all these sort of cautionary tales that we've been making since the 60s about intelligence becoming greater than us right becoming stronger than us becoming more powerful that you know it's it's frankenstein and the monster right so the kind of idea and i mean that's the 19th century there right so like my question is is as you know you say like these cyber attacks have have become the new sort of warfare space and as the the ability like we've talked about stuff like the stock market, right? And there's not a lot of people on the ground of the stock market anymore. It's mostly people programming AI. And, you know, that's good and it's convenient and it frees us to do other things. But when it's created to be such a competitive thing, or say someone creates an AI that can outsmart someone else's like a virus, say like to, to say change voting or to, to change people's minds through advertisement or something, how do we control such a potentially dangerous thing how do we program for that and i'm reminded actually of a really cool uh japanese manga series called ghost in the shell i don't know if you're familiar with it or not Shashan. Mm-hmm. nice reference yep and it's, a, it's a really good show it's a really good uh really good anime really good manga not a great movie starring scarlett johansson oh right it's a movie i, I you know what i 100 percent forgot about that because i read yeah. the comic book and i watch the anime which are very different but anyway mm-hmm. in, the, in, in the comic book one scientist postulates that to control the smarter artificial intelligence, we just program it to feel pain to keep it in control. So if it does something, we just basically apply a shock, shock collar to it. But one scientist rebuffs the other when he asks, well, what if it decides that it likes pain, especially if mm-hmm. the pain is merely just perceived than actually damage causing? Right. I mean, the real scary scenarios are, like you said, you know, the Terminator or the Matrix. And yeah, V'ger, I think, is subdued pretty quickly, right? It's mostly there's a big issue that we got to deal with. Decker, I'm taking your job. Special effects. V'ger is subdued. To come up with a solution, it's, it's a lot faster than it takes to even just get to the center of this gigantic cloud ball thing. It's like an interstellar jawbreaker. So I guess like, you know, like the motion picture, it's all about the journey, not the destination in terms of how we deal with AI. I don't know. Absolutely. Uh, The answer to your question for me lies in another underrated sci-fi cult classic, Battlestar Galactica, the 2004 reboot, where you see that AI has essentially caused genocide across 12 planets. And one of the only few ships that survives is a ship that has abandoned technology. It's an old world-class vessel that still uses radio transistors and typewriters. And they've, the, the ship is about to go on its last mission when the genocidal apocalypse happens. And it ends up being the only big military vessel. And that turns out to be an advantage because now that AI has been taken over by the Cylons, who are the Borg in that universe... The only way to survive is to get off that technology. I hope we don't come to a place in our world where we have to think about like that, uh, think about things like that. But that is that is the reality that, that we are heading to, and that is also what the motion picture alludes to: is that there is a reason why that is a big threat. It's it's also partly us. It's it's the fact that we led to such the such technological innovations happening as humans and we embrace them we never stop to ponder how it would be if our identity was replaced by these machines and this technology and that's 
very well discussed and explored in Battlestar Galactica. I recommend everybody go watch it. And it's also played not just for an entertaining story in the motion picture, because you cannot deny at any point that Vijay does not look beautiful. Vijay is a beautiful looking thing. And I think that was the point of the filmmakers is that they wanted to show you how it can be captivating. The idea of artificial intelligence, the idea of technology. And I very much enjoyed that that political subtext. And to answer your, to your question, if push came to shove, I think the the answer is to abandon that kind of technology so it doesn't overtake us. Hmm. That's yeah. That that might be the way to go. Or or we go the route Decker did, and we incorporate completely. That is true. There is uh, the the movie does not morally tell you oh perfectly that either A is right or B is wrong. So it's a as a believer in IDIC, I completely see your point. Yeah. So Shashank, the next place that I kind of want to go with with the motion picture is kind of situating the motion picture in its release period, right? And so kind of what we're seeing in Hollywood and then maybe also in, in the, the political realm and the world after that. So we have in the late 1970s, I would say, a a sort of advent of what we would see as modern sci-fi today. So 1977, we see Star Wars. And whether or not you're on whatever side of the argument here, you cannot deny that Star Wars was a complete and total hit in the face when it comes to special effects and storytelling and all of those amazing things. Of course, it could have also been a complete and total flop if you ever watched the original cut of it, but here we are, right? Star Wars really does set a milestone for sci-fi in general. Also that year, we see Close Encounters of the Third Kind come out as well, which is a personal favorite of mine. It's a it's a frightening and amazing movie in a lot of cases, but at the same time, it it deals with a very different look at science fiction. And then in 1979, so 1978, we've got sort of a leap. And then in 1979, we have Alien comes out, which is easily one of my favorite movies of all time, followed by finally in December, Star Trek The Motion Picture. So these four movies, I would say, are are sort of the, the sci-fi touchstones of what we see in modern science fiction today. What would your response be on that, Shashank? What is uh, just as interesting about their sci-fi identities to me is the fact that each of these movies have a distinct political identity. Star Wars to me is a war between the American democracy and space Nazis. That The allegory of how the force works and who the rebels are and what the empire is and how they're using the exact same force for something to, to accomplish something evil, that's just that's traditional uh, great political storytelling to me. And then Alien comes out, which is, to me, a huge allegory, a big statement about how the Vietnam War went, where we walked into something we didn't know. We walked into something that we were not supposed to. We tapped something that should not have been tapped. And those were our consequences, is you get killed and you're lost and nobody can... can empathize with you because this was all you're doing it's also to me a really good statement on gender politics the movie it's the entire movie to me is a woman trying to tell all men listen to me 
I am telling you what's going on. We need to get out of here and nobody listening to her. So that that movie also speaks on not just international and social politics. It speaks about gender politics and late 70s America. And then Close Encounters of the Third Kind is a shout out to the space race. Just the idea of how where we where we were in the world with the with the space race and how it was going between the Warsaw Pact and NATO in terms of the control over space. The the movie seems to be a very intriguing, interesting take on what aliens might be and where we are with space travel and what would happen in a situation where those less prepared would have to deal with something like this and how we, those in the West, those in the in the American story of things are supposed to be the good guys and how I, how the the movie itself is that this seems like a really big statement to me is it, are you on the same page with me there yeah i would say with close encounters of the third kind especially it it takes sort of the the contemporary station of every single nation that that you know when when aliens when slash if aliens arrive and they make their their arrival public all of those big big differences we have between politics and you know, environmental stuff and religion and all that sort of stuff is going to go right out the window. And I think the reason that it will is because the aliens, when, when, when they're in, you know, at devil's devil's tower, uh, in, in close encounters of the third kind, it's, it's a, it's a, it's like a confab of, of everybody together, right? Like the aliens aren't, aren't concerned with our, our crises and our, and our squabbles and stuff like that. They are supremely further advanced creatures who are here for whatever choice they want. And I mean, in the case of close encounters, thank goodness they're benevolent because that's the other thing is if we're busy fighting amongst ourselves and then aliens arrive and say they're like Cortez in Mexico, (laughs) like we're dead. That's the end. We won't be able to stop them. Just like the uh, the Aztecs were unable to stop Cortez and his invasions, so I think with that, you know, Close Encounters maybe kind of takes a takes a sort of acute look at at if if we encounter aliens and and stuff like that. But it also definitely sort of undercuts the the divisions that we prop up between ourselves and each other. The all these movies are fascinating. They they all they almost all have the consensus that they're better than Star Trek, the motion picture. But one of the best things about the motion picture, even with its faults, is that it predicts something deep within ourselves with our connections to technology and and with humanity and how there is no right and wrong in when you're having a conversation about where humanity stops and technology begins. And just like there is benevolence talked about in Close Encounters, there is benevolence talked about in this movie with uh, the AI that these guys encountered. And toward the end, the movie itself leave you, leaves you a little morally ambiguous. You yourselves are not sure who, if there is a really clean-cut good guy and a clean-cut bad guy. And in that way, the motion picture also succeeds to me. And I think it, it deserves to be on that list, not just for its technological brilliance and the visual effects that were revolutionary at the time for the motion picture, but also these contexts and these conversations that the movie got going. I I do feel the movie itself got a little more punishment than it deserved. It it did not it did not deserve to be treated the way it did at the box office back then, but I'm glad that it's still around today and we can talk about it. 
Yeah, and I, I would agree that that between all four movies, I would say that science is is very much still at the forefront of the motion picture, right? Star Wars is is sci fantasy, right? It's it's science fantasy. It's swashbuckling. It's mythical. It's heraldic. It's sort of an Arthurian legend in space, and nothing against it. I mean, I quite enjoy the original trilogy and and we'll watch it with friends and family and enjoy in kind of mystery science theater 3000 the following trilogy and i i mean i've seen the new star wars movies and have had mixed reviews you know like i think they're a bit of a rehashing and a retelling but that's fine i mean that happens on the star trek side too but i would say that we're how dare you yeah <laughs> where where's where star trek gets it really right is that that mix between science and feel you know, it, obviously the force is reaching out with your feelings. There is no science. Don't worry about it. Right. They never go into like, unless you buy those like cool, um, those cool, like cutaway books and stuff you can get in like elementary libraries and, you know, really, really hardcore collectors and stuff like that. It, you really don't, it doesn't really matter how an X-wing works. It doesn't really matter like the ant matter, antimatter, whatever the heck the death star uses to blow something up. Whereas I find very much that, Star Trek still really tries to justify itself scientifically along with pulling that feel. And I think that's why you end up with that ambiguous ending, right? You've got Decker at the end basically sacrificing himself to gain that extra uh, push into a new evolutionary form, right? He will cease to be, so will V'ger. But with that, something new will come. And I think of that very much like a real sort of pairing between science and feel. Um, Spock spotting V'ger, right in in when he's doing colon r and he he goes i sensed an intelligence coming right but at the same time you know they go through some pretty heavy lengths to explain you know how the enterprise has changed they they go through some pretty heavy lengths to sort of show like how v'ger works and how it operates and all that sort of stuff and i think i think in that respect you've got a really nice mix between all all of the the different facets of science fiction I don't know. Maybe people wanted wanted something more swashbuckling. Maybe something more, you know, explodey and boomy and fun and with pizzazz and pew pew pew. But that really never was Star Trek, right? If you think about let your, let that be your last battlefield or Devil in the Dark or the Corbomite maneuver, right? Like those episodes of Star Trek are important not because like the Enterprise does a bunch of cool chop sake flips and blows something up. I mean, it's it's. It's very much mental. It's very much scientific. It's very much, you know, diplomatic. And I think that's um, that's where the motion picture gets raked across the coals very unfairly. Um, I mean, uh, Wise, uh, Robert Wise was the uh, the director. He directed West Side Story. That's really cool, you know. Um, and then you've got Goldsmith's theme as well, you know, which would eventually be picked up by Star Trek The Next Generation. So for folks like me, when I got older and finally did watch the motion picture, I hear what I thought of as the Next Generation theme, and I'm like, what? And then you just start to really realize the reach that the motion picture actually had. It's certainly ironic in some way that Star Wars, which has a lot of Star Trek influences, ended up giving new life to the franchise of Star Trek and then the the motion picture was so heavily criticized for not being the swashbuckling laser sword fighting fantasy that Star Wars was. I think the movie itself, there are there are absolutely problems with the movie, but 
expecting it to be like Star Wars because that movie was such a big cultural phenomenon is also what hurt the movie a little bit. And you're absolutely right about the music. That album, that soundtrack album is one of the all-time great soundtracks to me. And the movie's music is almost too good for that movie. And I rarely ever think that's the case. But the the score succeeds on so many intellectual, emotional, and heartfelt layers that it it every scene it's in, it makes it better. And I understand that we've gone off on a bit of a tangent about the movie instead of talking about its political context, but I think it's important to understand these things also and the criticisms against it. Because if you're trying to understand a movie politically and if it could have made a bigger influence, it's important to also understand why it did not make a bigger impact, why it did not leave a, a bigger mark on on things that were uh, surrounding it at that point of time. Yeah, and I think also just couching music in um in in science fiction I think is important and you saying that that you know the music is music is almost better than the movie. Um I think that the music is is so much a, a beautiful part of it, right? It, it's it it complements it. Like you think of the the main themes, right? I I'm thinking of the three because I don't actually really remember the music to Alien because it's so sort of dark and tonal, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. listen listen to like the the sweeping, you know, right of of Star Trek, right? Or of of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then you get the just almost spine-tingling that that takes place in the motion picture or the Klingon theme. Um, Or, of course, you know, what the the motion picture main theme, which, you know, when you think about it, like, I mean, that's such a comforting song for me. It's just that... And so, sorry, I'm singing to everybody on Polytrex, but here, here we've come, right? That music so very much encapsulates the wonder and the awe of each specific show and and part of science fiction is music which i guess kind of breaks up that you know science versus feel sort of thing right i mean without the music none of those movies would have been what they were even even the music in that movie is political to me the way the music that's played when the enterprise is shown that would be something you could almost hear yourself listening to at a military parade you could hear that grandiose look at this giant thing that's so much bigger than us and it's going to do so many wonderful things music and then you compare it to that almost underwater sonar pingy music that you hear when you start going into the the dark in that movie. The music you hear when you hit the AI, the music, the horror that's slowly creeping up in that movie, that is also so political. And it's almost a haunting take on how you would be if you were in a war and you didn't know what was going on. How you would be if you were stuck in the middle of nowhere as a submarine deep in the Arctic uh, ocean and completely lost with no human contact and nowhere to go. The The movie also has such big resonative themes of the way our military works, the way our wars go and the way combat is done on ground and in the sky and underwater. The, there is not enough is said about the political context of Star Trek movies, but very little, almost cruelly and unjustly said about how the music has a political bent to it. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, 
as science fiction developed over the decades up to this point, you know, each movie, you know, occupies a different place. But I mean, you think about, you know, the continuation of Star Wars, right? And not much has changed. I find that the music definitely has continued as is, right? Um, If you look at Alien, you know, it's almost a cacophony now of of different sort of pseudo alien movies with like Alien versus Predator with just kind of your run of the mill sort of horror thriller slash em up sort of music, and then you get into the very introspective stuff that came from Prometheus, which um, speaking of flawed movies that could have been very very good but unfortunately sort of ended up kind of inverting on themselves. But if you think about Star Trek again and the way the music has changed, you know, like I think about the Borg theme in First Contact or I mean the beginning music to the 2009 JJ Abrams reboot. What an amazing score. And Each time Star Trek shows up on the big screen, I find that it is so very well characterized by the music. Um, It it, it carries it, and it creates these these great tones for what each movie is going to be. And I mean, tonally, um, a lot of the movies are pretty different from each other, and I appreciate that. Whereas I think there's been a bit of a common theme otherwise in other star in other sci-fi. First off. You saying Prometheus is a flawed movie? That's two two strikes, Barry. Two strikes. I you won't get a third one, my friend. You won't get a third one. And one of the reasons why I think the Star Trek reboot also succeeds, and we'll talk more about this when we get into the actual episode, the Polytrex of Star Trek 2009, is that the music is so arrogantly different yet similar to what we got in the original Star Trek movies and. Unlike what they did with the music from the Star Wars reboots and the Star Wars sequels and Rogue One, uh, where they essentially played the same beats over and over, trying to give you that nostalgia, which our Star Trek uh, music by Michael Giacchino, who is one of my favorite composers, the music has echoes of the motion picture and the next generation and the original series, but it's so justly its own. And I love that about the the music of that movie. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I think it's time we give our, our listeners a chance to consider all of the things that we've said. Of course, this conversation is more than welcome to be continued on social media. You can even come and talk to us at STLV. Um, you can tell me how many strikes I've made on you as opposed to Shashank by calling movies flawed and all that sort of stuff and evoking Star Star Wars and, and other you know competing franchises. But I think it's time we hear Mr. Shashank's look at the final thoughts. In summary, it seems like it's the most obvious thing to say, Star Trek The Motion Picture is a flawed movie. But intentionally or unintentionally, that movie has so many deeper political contexts. The AI in that movie, for instance, and how the AI might not be all bad, and the decision of a character to infuse themselves with that AI at the end is so much a conversation about the present we are in. And this movie was... 39 years ago the fact that that movie at that point had the foresight to proclaim yeah one day humans are going to choose technology over parts of humanity and that'll be okay because technology is also deeply human that is a great political conversation to me there are countries today that are defined by their 
stances on technology defined by their stances on the internet, the AI, uh, all the other advancements that are happening in biotechnology and nanotechnology. The fact that the motion picture had the guts to claim that and say, this is something that will happen that is deeply prophetic to me and deeply political. And the movie is also a really good allegory for the Cuban Missile Crisis to me. The Cuban Missile Crisis is one of my favorite political events, simply because it shows both the power of combat and this fear of the unknown, and it shows how diplomacy can make things right, even at the 11th hour. And this movie so much talks about those things, and it's a, it's a great allegory for those things. And while we all agree that there are better Star Trek movies, giving the motion picture its fair due only seems right to me. And that's why it's important to, when you watch the movie the next time, try to compare it to real world events, see how futuristic the movie is, see how the movie so convincingly balances conversations about science and politics and shows you how characters can still be saved, how humans can still be saved in spite of of a fear of technology and a fear of the unknown. So with with that being said, I do think the polytrex of the motion picture, if not anything, I hope we have shown you a different way to look at the movie and consider deeper meanings of this movie that aren't talked about enough. Well, folks, that concludes this episode of the Politrex of Star Trek The Motion Picture. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, but of course, the conversation never really has to end anymore because we have some artificial intelligence infrastructures that can help us continue this, and you can even yourself, yes, you, can join us and continue talking about the relevance, the eloquence that is Star Trek The Motion Picture. You can call into the show and leave a voicemail if you're interested at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. You can also hop on different social media platforms. Shashank, how can they do that? You can send us a nice message, an angry message, an honest message, hopefully, on our Facebook page. We are Polytrex. You'll find our logo. You'll find a cool banner showing us. You can also get to us, tweet at us. Tell us what you think on Twitter at Polytrex, that is P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. We always enjoy getting new followers. We love interacting with them. We love your responses. Uh, We enjoy when you laugh at our jokes or you tell us that our jokes are not funny because that also helps us improve our comedic skills. So everything you're doing on social media helps. And thank you for uh, being a follower if you are one. And if you aren't, follow us on at Polytrex. And if you find yourself looking for more Star Trek discussion, of course, you can hop on the Tricorder Transmissions podcast network. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, we are growing and we are growing fast and it is all killer, no filler. And if you're still looking for more, you can always check out Dan and Bill at the Trek Geeks podcast as well. That is all for this episode of Politrex. We hope that you all have a wonderful time as spring approaches. And we'd always say to you, live long and prosper. And onward to Star Society.